Miss the show, no problems on point and on the podcast. The two Michaels are now home, but there are still 115 Canadians who remain in Chinese jails. Four of them are on death row. One of those people jailed is Hussein Salil. He's a Canadian Uyghur imam who has been jailed for 15 years because he fought to free Uyghur Muslims. His wife doesn't even know if he's alive, but she will talk to us because she is begging the Trudeau government for help. We will talk about truth and reconciliation, and apparently the only path to reconciliation is if we learn the injustices faced by Indigenous communities in the past, because that's what affects the trauma and the suffering they feel today. And we'll also talk about this landmark court ruling. The Trudeau government said they were not suing Indigenous children, but a court has come back and said, you gotta pay up, and it could cost Canadians billions. We'll talk about this court ruling, and we'll speak to a Calgary man who skipped vaccines because he was strong enough to fight the virus, only to find himself a few days later on an incubator fighting for his life. We will talk about the message he wants unvaccinated people to hear. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Great to have you here with us on this Thursday. Uh, the two Michaels, of course, are now free, but there are still 115 Canadians who remain in Chinese jails. Four of them sit on death row. So you can just imagine how they feel watching all the celebration around the release of these men. I mean, on one hand, it offers hope, but it also serves as a painful reminder that their loved one may never come back. And Hussein Salil is one of those people. This is a Canadian Uyghur imam who escaped China's Xinjiang region back in the 90s after he was jailed for using a megaphone to broadcast his prayers. He then came to Canada in 2001 as a political refugee, and it was during that time when he traveled to Uzbekistan on a Canadian passport that he was detained and sent back to China, where he has been jailed for life by a dictatorship refusing to recognize his Canadian citizenship or allow him as much as one consular visit over 15 years. His family here in Canada don't actually know if he's even still alive. Camila is the wife of Hussein Salil. She joins us now. Good to have you, Camila. Yes, thank you for inviting your show. I really appreciate Stephen- Stephen Harper raised your husband's case to then-President Hu Jintao, but in 2016, under the Trudeau government, his sentence was reduced to 20 years, and then it all changed because Meng Wanzhou was arrested, and now your husband has not been heard from since. And you've always been able to get information from your relatives, but they have since, as I understand, been swept up possibly into the concentration camps into the Xinjiang region. Mm -hmm. So how are you able to find out any information on him? Oh yeah. So they have they have arrested him 2006, and then I haven't talked to him since they detained him 2006. I haven't seen him. There was there wasn't been conversation with him since 2006. Now coming up year 2020 is going to be 16 years. He has served six, more than decades. Mm-hmm. In China, in prison. Now, you know, the common house, they declared it's a genocide mm-hmm. for the Uyghur people in China. So if they have declared genocide, why they are letting the St. Julian still in China in prison, which is he's a Canadian citizen. 
What has it been like for you? Um, you know, the Michaels release, obviously very high profile. But what's it been like for you um, to to see that release, knowing full well that your husband um, either might not be alone or may never get released? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing news. You know, for the Canada, when I read the news uh, during the weekend, it, I, I'm used. You know, it it is amazing. It's perfect news for Canada. But on the other hand, I was. I was strongly disappointed. I was really angry, mad, still, you know, still. My madness didn't go, you know. I'm still mad, angry. Why did they include St. Julian? Why did why, why, why did they bring top to Michael's case? The, Trudeau's government, the they brought, Trudeau's government, they brought to Michael's case on the top. They always, they always, you know, they were talking, they were speaking out to Michael's case. They are in China, they are in prison, they are in China. They're... Why they are not raising my husband's case? What's the reason? Why? I know they are scared from China. Now they prove they can make deal with China. They can sit on the table, they can meet, they can swap, they can exchange, they can stop one of them businesses. Now I'm not letting him to sit quietly in the office. I'm going to push them to bring my husband back. The Trudeau government says they are still fighting uh, to get your freedom, um, your husband's freedom. Um, but do, do you believe that? No, I don't. I don't. No, they haven't done nothing since he, he came into power. Through the Scotland, they haven't done nothing. Nothing. I have never seen this, something successful they have done. So they were asking consular access. He didn't have a consular access since they, he detained. You know, when they sent him from Uzbekistan to China, he never had a consular access. Where is his Canadian citizen? Where is his humanitarian? He was a human rights activist. He was, a, you know, he was talking about people's rights in, uh, for Uyghur people. Where is his rights? He was traveling with uh, Canadian passport, and then we got visa for Canadian passport. He never able to get his rights from Canada side. Do you feel abandoned? Yeah, it's you know, it's very painful. It is very painful. It's been 16 years. 16 years. I was waiting, you know. It's very painful. I cannot, I cannot describe it by the word, you know. It's very painful. The guy, he's, the guy, he's sitting in prison 15 years for his speaking out for his people's rights to protect his people's rights, his people's values, his people's education. Where's the human rights? Where's the justice in this world? The, the issue of the Uyghur Muslims is certainly known. Um, you know, the opposition yes. pushed for the condemnation of it, to call it a, a genocide. Um, the Trudeau government did not vote on that. But it is well known around the world that there, there are concentration camps going on. Mm -hmm. Knowing your husband, do you believe he is alive? Do you believe that he is in one of those camps? Yeah, that's my big worries, you know. I really worried about him. Is he alive or not? Because... Canada didn't get any access. He hasn't been any successful, you know, nobody successful to get through his, uh, through his case. So what's going on? They were asking, I'm not saying, you know, they haven't asked. They asked, but they were very, very patiently slow. They were, like, they were doing a really baby steps, you know. Mm -hmm. And who is helping you? I mean, they were not pushing hard. They were not working this case hard, you know. They were pushing side. They were hiding this case. Why? 
That's my big question through those Goldman, why they were hiding Jilil's case. Why? They know and, and who, what's going on in China. There is a massive camp. There's a massive prisoners right now. Still, they are pushing the, this case under the table. They are pushing this case side. But through those Goldman, they brought to Michael's case top, top of the priority, you know, in the they brought in the United Nations, they brought to the USA to help them. Why? Why they are pushing my husband's case? Why? And so, you know, you, you have had um, a voice on this. You've been pushing on this. Obviously, it's been, been something you've been fighting for. But who, who is helping you um, with this fight? Does it all come down to the media ratcheting up the, the pressure on this? Uh, who is helping you? Yes, I need the media. You know, I want the media to pressure the Trudeau's government. Not to sit him quietly in his office until he's going to bring Canadian citizens home to Canada. He's very active to bring the Syrian and Afghani refugees here, but he cannot stand up for his own citizen in China who served 16 more than a decade in prison in China. That's a shame on him. Shame on Canada. I have to think that. Uh that it is extraordinarily painful. I, I can't actually imagine uh, what it's been like for, it you is for very 16 painful. years. You know, I raised four kids myself. There's no family members. I was the father. I was the mother. It is very painful. I can't, I can't describe it one word. You know, it's how it's painful. They, they haven't seen the father's law. They haven't. Of course, I'm going to get mad. Of course, you know, I was, since, the, since Saturday when I read the news, I was happy how they were rejoining the, with the family to Michael's. It divided the kids. Of course, on the other hand, I was really painful. Still, you know, my heart is broken. I'm really, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't hold my emotion. My emotion is breaking, you know, it's, uh, my heart is, I'm really sorry. Yeah. You don't need to apologize. I think people absolutely understand. Well, look, I, I'm very thankful you spoke with us, and I'd be more than happy to make sure that you have that voice. And certainly it raises the question as to why we are not pushing harder for these other people, including uh, exactly. your husband. And yeah. So- I beg, yeah, I beg oppositionists, opposition leaders. I beg, I beg them, you know, opposition leaders, to help that case, to push the Trudeau's Gortman in the corner to question why he doesn't want to bring him, why, why he's letting the same so many years in the prison in China, why, why he's not standing up, why he doesn't want to bring this case in the top. The Foreign Affairs Minister, I want to tell to, from here the Foreign Affairs Minister, he doesn't want to recognize his, his citizen, he doesn't want to recognize his case, why, why he's hiding this case, why he's hiding this case. Everybody knows now what's going on in the Xinjiang province for the Uyghur people. He was one of them top human rights activists. He was joining the protests. He was joining for the amnesty groups events. He was giving speech. He was, you know, he was very free in Canada. And then he was giving very speech, freedom, protect his people's rights. Well, it's no question about it. It is a headline that should not go away. It is a story that should not go away. And certainly your husband's um, name should not go away. And we'll continue talking about it. Camille, I really appreciate you joining us today. Okay, thank you. Thank you for calling me. Thank you. That is uh, Camilla Salil, whose husband is in a Chinese jail, Hussein.
uh, human rights activist um, fighting for the Uyghur Muslims. And again, no one's heard about him, no consular services for him. And why is there no outrage about it? We'll continue talking about this. I'm Alex Pearson here on Point on Global News Radio. We do not just recognize the truth, but understand the truth and bring it into ourselves and then bring it into every action we take every day as we live with intention, with mindfulness about what we bring and what we shape with our words, with our choices throughout our lives. And we are not understanding the lessons of the past. That was the Prime Minister last night at a ceremony for National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, which is a day he mandated after the discovery of a number of residential schools. And reconciliation is not told through one story or one voice because Indigenous people in this country are not monolith and they each have their own story to share which would include my next guest who grew up on the Muskowekwan First Nation which closed its residential school in 1997. So that is not long ago. And Melissa Mabarki writes in the National Post a really, I think, interesting article saying that it's hard to reconcile the injustices faced by Indigenous communities in the past when the effects of the trauma suffered in those residential schools are still being felt so acutely today. And that until we do understand it, we won't understand why so many Indigenous people live in poverty, suffer the highest addiction and suicide rates and make up the highest prison rates in Canadian jails. That can, that that comment there uh, really stuck with me because I had not ever made the connection before and I don't think a lot of Canadians would because we're all starting to learn a lot of our history with Indigenous peoples right now. Melissa Mabarki joining me now. She's a policy analyst and outreach coordinator, Indigenous policy program at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, also a member of the Treaty 4 Nation in Saskatchewan. Melissa, always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me today. You yourself are connected to residential schools. There was one on your reserve and your best friend went to a residential school and you refer to her in a writing uh, column that you wrote as number 52 because that was the number pinned to her uniform and together you would plot her escape from the school which eventually she got but what you would also experience were missing kids the runaways from the school the suicides I mean these were all things that were part of your life is there anyone in our indigenous communities who is not linked somehow to these schools Today, there is no one. I mean, everybody is a descendant of these schools, whether your grandparents, your parents, I mean, everyone has been affected uh, by this tragedy. My entire community, I mean, right now, you know, we have many surviving uh, members in my community. And if you think about it, probably every reserve in Canada has a survivor or a descendant of a survivor, and that's a pretty sad statistic. It really is. I mean, 
you've got a piece in the National Post, which I, I urge my listeners to, to listen to. It resonated with me because it didn't dawn on me um, the, of this direct link between the destruction caused by these schools and how it fueled destruction generation to generation with kids either going into foster homes or jails or to the streets or, you know, having addiction issues. And that's because there was absolutely no support or transition in place. I mean, the schools closed and it was like, off you go, uh, you know, deal with it yourselves to pick up the pieces. That's exactly how it worked. I mean, the kids left these schools and were basically left to fend for themselves. They had absolutely no life skills. They had no uh, parents in their life, you know, so they were left to make it as best as they could. And what we're seeing is, you know, the trauma and the effect from that. You know, people, you know, they've lost a whole, they've lost generations of uh, teachings and it definitely shows in my community. I mean, very few people um, continue the tra- on in the traditional way. And I was fortunate enough, um, you know, because my grandfather taught us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's some... There's some good stories out there, but many of them are uh, pretty tragic. And that's one of the things I grew up seeing were was just constant death and horrors that, you know, no person, no person should ever see in this lifetime. I mean, you just it just became a normal part of life. If that, you know, sounds weird, it just was in any reserve. It was just accepted. You know, There's there are things that people will do today. Some will wear a T-shirt. Um, you know, there'll be lots of what some people call slacktivism. I mean, you can lower a flag, you can do the T-shirt, or you can give a speech. Th- those things are the easy things. It's really the action that, that, that will bring the reconciliation. Do you believe, um, and I know that you don't speak for all Indigenous groups in this country, but is there a feeling that action will be taken, that this is going to... Um, start to heal because this was not an issue in the election it was barely discussed and um and i'm wondering how seriously um, those in indigenous communities feel that this is being taken i mean some are very skeptical i mean they're they've dealt with promises after promises and you know they they're really skeptical about it and then there's others like myself that you know i do hold on to some hope that there will be some change. Um, but until we start seeing the governing bodies uh, start mm-hmm. to shift, um, you know, we're not going to see change. And we cannot have change if we're constantly battling someone. And it's not going to change until they start allowing um, us to kind of take over some of the services in our community, some of the basic services. Right. Yeah. And it's not going to be overnight. So anybody looking for this thing to be, you know, wrapped up with a bow in a few months, um, no, it's going to take 50, 60 years uh, to, to finally get to a place, I think, of healing. Can you give me a reaction uh, to the federal court's rejection of the Trudeau government's appeals? I mean, the Trudeau government has been in court for the last five-ish years, spent $100 million to fight the compensation um, and basic services for Indigenous kids um, and survivors of residential schools. I don't know what their decision is going to be. The Indigenous minister was asked, you know, will you pay the compensation? Or are you going to fight this? And they're reviewing it. They can either appeal this to the Supreme Court or they can pay it out. If they take this court battle further, I would think that that would stop reconciliation. 
It definitely would. Um, you know, and we're definitely anticipating another appeal in this decision. We know that it's not going to be something they're just going to hand over and, you know, not fight us for. And when you look at the, you know, the items that they are fighting us for, they're, they're actually pretty minute, you know, like we're, we're asking why are Indigenous children discriminated against? Why, what's the difference between an Indigenous child on reserve versus off reserve? You know, and, and mm-hmm. it's stuff like this that's holding this up unnecessarily. And it just seems really trivial. But, you know, it's what they're willing to pay $100 million for. And I just don't yeah. understand why. Yeah, when you think of what could have been done with that money, the services or the water or things that could have been invested into communities, it's just baffling, Um, you know, especially from this government, which staked its brand on truth and reconciliation. I want to get your thoughts, um, if you have any, on the Prime Minister not being here. He went to Tofino for a holiday, uh, according to the Prime Minister's office, to surf um, for a few days. Does it matter that he's not here today? It is very disappointing and actually kind of angering because, you know, we have this holiday. Even as an Indigenous person, we didn't really know what to expect. Um, You know, we we knew there was going to be some events and we knew that, you know, there was going to be some gatherings, um, you know, but I don't think we expected him to go surfing. Um, I think that was kind of like the last thing that we were um, anticipating from him. And... From my point of view, it is very disappointing and it's almost like a slap in the face because, you know, it just shows how little respect he has for this day. And, you know, he could have he could have made an appearance this morning um, somewhere and visited survivors and visited a community. It takes an hour out of your time, you know, but he's on vacation um, and I just have no words. I really don't. Yeah, the optics are not great. Nonetheless, Melissa, always uh, appreciate you coming on and giving us your time and very much appreciate the discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. That is Melissa Mubarki. And if you want to read a terrific insight into how reconciliation can be reached, she has written a really good article in the National Post, so you can find it there. When we come back, we're going to talk about this landmark ruling. It's a very big court ruling. It is a very complex issue. But it, what it means is that the Trudeau government now has to make a choice. Either it pays out billions in compensation or it decides to fight this at the Supreme Court level, which doesn't exactly help with reconciliation. We'll dive into that in just a second. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on point. And this is Global News Radio. They have been fighting this case against First Nations kids to get equitable services and their families to get help to recover from the residential school trauma for now 14 and a half years. That is the voice of Cindy Blackstock, who has really led the charge against the federal government on a landmark compensation case that ordered the government to compensate over 60,000 Indigenous children who were taken from their homes and forced into foster care. And in many of of these cases, they were the children of parents who suffered in residential schools. And these kids were failed basic health care necessities, proper care, and protection from neglect and abuse. And the ruling was made by a human rights tribunal, but 
The Trudeau government has spent over $100 million in half a decade fighting this ruling in a federal court. And on Wednesday, the court upheld the tribunal ruling, which means the Trudeau government will have to make a decision. Do they fight the decision, take it to the Supreme Court, or pay out billions? Whatever choice they make will have, a, I think, a direct impact on reconciliation. Ken Coates is a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute uh, contributor. He's also a Canadian historian who focuses on the history of the Canadian North and Aboriginal rights and Indigenous claims. Good to have you, Ken. Great to be with you. So this um, court um, order, th- th- this is a complex ruling on a complex issue that goes back about 14 years. So, so this has been battled out in the courts for a number of years, but a lot of people aren't familiar with the issue. Can you kind of break down the importance of this case? Well, the case is really fundamental, and obviously it's been a long battle. But essentially it started with the position brought in by Cindy Blackstone, who's quite a remarkable individual, um, who essentially said one of the major challenges facing Indigenous communities is the absence of social services. Uh, child and youth care programs are insufficient. Uh, crisis interventions are insufficient. Counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, psychiatrists, you just don't have enough support there to assist Indigenous communities coping with all the other implications of residential schools and years of racism and government paternalism and all those things that we know now very, very well. And so it initially started off as a campaign essentially to say, please give these communities the supports they need. And the government sort of say, well, you know, we're doing we're doing fairly well. We're we're adding to things incrementally, but you know, we can't really. There's only so much we can do. And this eventually morphed into a challenge uh, to the Human Rights Commission, essentially saying, you know, can you force the government to provide comparable services, not exceptional services, not wonderful boutique services, just comparable services to Indigenous communities, to what are provided to non-Indigenous communities across the country. It's one of these things about, you know, basic care. It's as basic as water. Social services are, are, are essential for, for communities. Family and children's services and intervention services are essential for any society, particularly ones that are undergoing such, such important and, and difficult sort of transitions. Um, the government of Canada fought back and went to, you know, different, there were different challenges and, and different sort of political processes. Eventually, uh, Cindy Blackstone and her group went to the, uh, the Canadian Human Rights Commission and said, we've been treated poorly here. And the Human Rights Commission has said, as, the, as almost the only method of so, the resolution they have, is, well, we can provide up to $40,000 compensation for people who are um, uh, treated Im- improperly by government or another organization. Well, when you add this together and take the, you know, the 60,000-plus people, and the number is going to be much larger than that, and the $40,000 in compensation that has been the maximum the Human Rights Commission can provide, you're left with a staggering decision. And the government of Canada has resisted this and fought back against it. Their argument has been very simply that uh, that money will not address the problem. It'll, it'll be compensation, to be sure, uh, but it won't actually solve the problem. Uh, and we need other, other solutions that basically involve expanding social services, and those are underway. So here we're stuck with a re- the problem of re- resolving things through the courts and through judicial mm-hmm. and quasi-judicial processes. It's a staggering bill. Yeah, oh, it's a staggering bill. I mean, think about what you could do with $100 million. You would have uh, clean drinking water for, for every Indigenous person in this country. It's staggering how much money has been fought fighting this. And I understand why uh, these big cases sometimes get 
fought because uh, you have to be careful of the precedent it sets. I get that there are there are always reasons why um, they can be challenged, but in this one, I mean, it has been years and years, and this is a government that branded itself on truth and reconciliation. And, you know, Trudeau himself got into trouble during the election, you might recall, saying, we're not suing children, we're not suing children. Well, yeah, you're essentially suing children. Um, and here now, they've got to make a decision. So what decision do they make? Do they pay out the compensation, or do they dare take this to the Supreme Court? Because if this stays tied up in court, um, that won't move reconciliation forward. It, it won't. And in fact, it, continuing to fight this would be sort of, in one sense, the worst measure possible. The interesting thing is the time to do something about this was five years ago. Um, yeah. And there were people in the government who were pushing very strongly for this. When the, when the whole issue sort of got closer to, to the, the final decision by the, by the Human Rights Commission, the government of Canada could have come forward and said, hey, listen, we're going to make a major investment in children and family services. Ironically, they've started to do that. There was a, a, a recent uh, decision or, or agreement reached in with the Cowessons First Nation in Saskatchewan where they provided some very substantial annual allocations, millions of dollars to the community, so the community can take over family and children's services. The Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations in the province of Saskatchewan is taking a national leadership role in coming up with new approaches uh, to family and children's services offered directly by First Nations. Had they, five years ago, had they come and said, yeah. we're going to do this and it's going to be Indigenous-led and, and run through Indigenous governments, the, the, the first the people like Cindy Blackstone probably would have backed down. They, were, they didn't start this looking for compensation. They started this to save the lives of Indigenous children and to repair families hurt by a whole series of bad historical circumstances, that, including the residential schools. So there was a chance to resolve this, but we're so locked into these confrontations through legal and quasi-judicial processes that, that sort of once the fight is joined, there's strong reluctance to sort of back away. But I'll tell you, have we ever discovered the costs and consequences of bad policy? That's what you're seeing play out in front of us. Yeah, and the other area that this money could have gone to is to the services, to put in wraparound services for support, um, you know, in mental health services, addiction issues, all these things. It's such a waste. Um, and again, we get a lot of talk from the governments, but we don't get the action, and, and therefore uh, reconciliation will never be found, and it's just going to cause greater uh, division. I mean, there, there has to be one thing um, if this is to succeed, Ken. There's got to be some sincerity but but following that, there's got to be, be tangible action. Absolutely. You have to do something that's real and substantial. The deal with Cowessus, the deal with FSIN uh, is a starting point with this kind of new relationship. I think it is promised. But, but here's the reality, and this will kind of make people across Canada sort of roll their eyes in one sense. You're actually going to have to do both. You're now stuck with a situation where the compensation is almost in inevitable now. Um, it doesn't, if you appeal to the Supreme Court, it doesn't mean they'll turn it down. Uh, they may very easily accept it. Uh, and if they do, you're really stuck then. Well, you're going to pay both. You're going to have to pay the compensation and then provide the service. And this yeah. is just the, this is the, 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 cons, the consequence of, of the government delays and not taking the, the challenges really seriously. You know, uh, I'm not convinced, by the way, that, they're, and that, that, that providing all these social services and stuff will, will certainly in the short term solve the problems. Um, the difficulties that you're facing with of deep addiction challenges, domestic violence, all these kinds of things arising out of you know the residential schools and the multi generational trauma, these are not easily solved problems. 
And just mm-hmm. hiring a whole bunch of social workers and counselors will not, within a one-year, two-year, five-year, 10-year, 20-year time period, address the issues. But, it, but you've got to do something to help these families in crisis. And we can certainly do a yeah. lot better. And now we're stuck with getting the, the worst of both worlds. Uh, delays in the services, long resistance to providing the services, and then having to provide a whole bunch of compensation uh, without any clear direction as to who gets it, how it's going to be used, um, and what people right. will do with it. This is a this is a resolution that makes nobody happy. No, exactly, and uh, yeah, it's it's so true, and uh, it could be compounding a lot of problems. So we'll see what the government ends up deciding. They haven't yet said what they're going to do, but uh, to your point, you know, you can give the money, but if it's not properly given and it actually is you know giving services and supports what is the point i've got to leave it there but i so appreciate your time on this ken thank you anytime you take care bye now that is ken coates who is an expert on canadian northern and aboriginal um, issues and indigenous land claims joining us here when we come back we're going to talk to a gentleman in alberta who is not an anti-vaxxer he just felt he was tough enough to tough out covid should he get it And then he got it. He'll tell us his story because he wants to speak out, because he barely made it, and he wants to send a message. Stay with us for that. Alex Pearson on Point. And this is Global News Radio. This is one of those um, stories for the unvaccinated. Because they now... I wouldn't call him an anti-vaxxer because he's not against vaccines, but he didn't get the vaccine. And he's speaking out now because he said he could, you know, thought he could survive COVID and then he got it only to find himself fighting for life on a ventilator. His name is Bernie Cook. He's not against the vaccine. He just thought, you know, if I get it, take my chances. And then it hit. He did get uh, tested positive on August thir- 31st and then instantly went um, downhill, landing in ICU for 11 days. But it was a battle for life. He did survive, but ended up losing 30 pounds, doing even the simplest of tasks. It was even a struggle. But he now wants to speak out, warning others that COVID is no joke. Bernie Cook joins me now from Calgary. Good to have you, Bernie. Hi there. How are you, Alan? Well, I'm good, and I'm glad to uh, hear you are on the mend. You are on the mend, correct? Correct. Um, slowly, it's it's uh, it's quite a process. Um, I'm finding myself not uh, having uh, a terrible amount of, of energy. Um, it's, uh, but I am feeling like my voice is getting a little bit stronger every day. Um, it's uh, my throat is starting to heal up a little bit. Uh, which is nice. I'm really happy about that. Um, uh, I'm able to chew now. So uh, that started today. I was able to chew a little bit uh, for foods instead of having like pureed foods, which is nice. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so I mean, the healing is a process. I, I, they suspect I'll be out probably for about six weeks and then who knows how I'm going to be affected uh, in my lungs and breathing and stuff, my stamina and whatnot after from that point on down the road oh. yeah yeah i don't so know. you were you were not vaccinated but it's not because no. you're against vaccines you just felt like if it hits me I'll, I'll be okay because i'm a healthy guy well that is part of it like so um i did have leanings towards anti-vax sentiment 
and and I still have a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions, especially in Alberta. They're not revealing like all the real numbers um, mm-hmm. and uh, like hard numbers. And and so I, I we feel like part of that anti-vax sentiment is that we feel that our government is lying to us. It's they're they're holding back information. There's and but I mean it goes like there's 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 a whole gamut of questions. But I mean it's it is what it is. Um, for me, I mean I I chose not to get the the vaccine. I was. Um, I was very much leaning towards not getting it. Uh, I felt that I was. Do, do you regret that? Do you regret that? Um, I don't know. I really don't know because nearly dying, like, I have a whole new sense of gratitude towards life that I never had before. Um, I, I can see color, like nearly dying, like that's, that's traumatic. Um, and the, uh, like now I can see since coming out of a coma and all that, I can see like color to music, which is really cool. And there's even like a name for it and stuff. I had no idea. Like it's, it, there's some cool stuff that has come out of this process. I feel so much but more connected to my family, my wife, um, uh, a much more gratitude towards life now. I, so I guess you tested, there is positive that have come out of it. You tested positive on August 31st, and, and it, it kind of hit really fast. Um, yeah, you were, ended up in ICU for 11 days. Yeah. Um, there were some very, very dark moments for you, correct? Take us through those. Um, the, uh, the drugs that they put you on when you're intubated, and they're starting to pull you out of the uh, the sedative. Um, the uh, some of, there's one of the drugs that they put you on that uh, which I think is the one that's responsible for the hallucinations. But I was I went to uh, some like the hallucinations took me to some really really dark dark places, um, and I couldn't escape them, and I kept reliving them. Every time I closed my eyes, I just kept going back there, and there was like this this land of desolation and ash and there was nothing that was alive in this place nothing existed other than ash and it was uh it was hard because um it would go into a place where i was buried in the ash and then i'd come back out of that and then i'd see the ash blowing across the 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 landscape and it was just endless and uh it was that was really traumatic i kept seeing that every time I closed my eyes um, and uh, thankfully I had like the first night I had my intubation out um, when I was going through that the nurse was there she came over and she held my hand and I'm, I'm just like like uh, oh my god I was crying and I couldn't didn't control myself I was in I was in some severe um, I was in, I was in a trauma like I was right in the PTSD of it and uh, it was reliving that was really really harsh. But I mean, you're talking I, about taking out the intubation. It's very very painful because again, they, oh, they don't put you under. There's yeah. no way. Like they they just pull it out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a whole other story too. Like when when they pulled that out of my mouth and or well, it was like it went. The tubes go into your mouth, 
and then down into there's a tube that goes down into your stomach and there's some like sensors and stuff that go down into your stomach and then there's some the the tubes that go into your lungs and and it did a lot of damage to my throat my esophagus my vocal cords my tongue uh my gums uh it did a lot of damage in there um and i'm still healing from that but um when they pull it out literally you got to be awake and you're part of the process uh they, they guide you through like a breathing technique and they tell you when to breathe in and hold it and then you know what i mean cough and you know mm-hmm. that kind of thing as they're pulling it out and um when they pulled it out my entire body just shook and shocked like it was that was that was also quite traumatic um uh, not a recommended experience um i'd rather uh, <laughs> uh, i'd rather a desert beach <laughs> on a vacation uh you know like what what what's your message to people though i mean you came out the other side um w- uh, what's your message then to people um reconsider my wife my wife was completely vaccinated my daughter living in my house completely vaccinated my granddaughter living in my house completely vaccinated i was not not one of them while i was fully contagious mm-hmm. um i mean like i'm kissing my wife sleeping beside her um she didn't catch covid no one in the house caught covid not a single symptom me i ended up in icu and intubation tubes nearly dying like there's i mean obviously when you kind of do the math equation there why didn't they get sick and i did and then when i was talking to nurses inside they're saying that everybody in here is there was there was one person in my ward who had a single vaccine everybody else the entire ward was full of uh every single bed was taken in that ward and um, the uh, this was at the Peter Lawheed Center in Calgary. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you know every single person, other than that one person that had a single vaccine, everyone else was unvaccinated. Like yes. it's unvaccinated people are flooding our. Uh, I hear it's different in mm-hmm. in India mm-hmm. or someplace like you know um, like overseas somewhere. I was hearing about. You know the the difference in variation where um, uh, countries that got vaccined very quickly and yeah. took the vaccine very quickly, there there there's higher rates of uh, yeah. it's it's so weird. Why is it so different? I don't understand. Like here, the Delta variant is, is freaking it's slaughtering us. Yeah. Like it's well, look, no I, I'm up against the clock. I'm I'm up against a clock, uh, Bernie, but I wanted yeah. you to tell your story because you have a unique sure. perspective and certainly now that you are vaccinated, um, you know, yeah. certainly hopefully, hoping that you're on the mend. But I do appreciate you taking the time uh, yeah. to chat with us because I know you're still uh, in recovery. So thank you. Yeah. yeah, not a problem. Bernie Cook, who had uh, not been vaccinated but got COVID, now saying get vaccinated. We hear that a lot. Get vaccinated. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.